We sort of take them for granted now, robotic vehicles operating in emergency or disaster situations. Reliance on robots didn't just happen. Among other things, it took the establishment of accurate and repeatable testing methodologies to know for sure if a robot can traverse a rocky slope or a smoky building. For his work at developing advanced robotics testing, my next guest is a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. He's a robotics research engineer in the Intelligent Systems Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, Adam Jakoff. Mr. Jakoff, good to have you on. Hi, how are you? All right. So tell us about these robots. These are the kinds of wheeled vehicles that might sniff around a suspected bomb, or tell us the range of what they normally do nowadays. Well, those are the types of robots you would have seen maybe on the news if you're thinking about bomb squads approaching improvised explosive devices and other things trying to uh, disarm them. But you need to think a little bit broader because uh, robotics is generally any smart systems that are either ground-based or underwater, or actually you're seeing a lot of drones flying around the airspace these days. Those drones are very smart robotic systems in and of themselves, some of the smartest I get to work with, and they have their own application space for emergency response and others. All right. And manufacturers sell these things, I guess, to government agencies at the federal, state, and local level. They're not tested when they're sold? Or how does the testing that you developed come into the whole system here? Yeah. So when we started this, this was you know literally almost 20 years ago, there was really no measurement science going on for how to evaluate such systems. And there were no standards involved, no standard test methods that would help people quantify the performance. So when we stepped into that void, we just started filling it with, at first ground, robot tests, terrains and dexterity tasks and laser mapping kind of tasks in an effort to help the manufacturers and to inspire the researchers toward answering the needs of emergency responders. Uh, They may have been buying equipment, but they really didn't know exactly what that equipment was going to do. And invariably, that early equipment was not ready for prime time. They were just not capable of doing the things that emergency responders needed. And so the standard test methods became sort of the tangible language that all these very disparate communities could use. I mean, you could literally watch a robot go across a physical terrain to a statistically significant level of repetition so that you have some confidence that really does work before purchasing. And then ultimately, people started using the test to specify their purchases. So you need a robot that does, you know, X, Y, and Z. Uh, Well, not every robot does all three well. Uh, And you need to start revising your expectations based on what the commercial market can provide. But in the meantime, although the commercial market wasn't really working in its most efficient self, that was because the emergency responders didn't know how to ask pointed questions. So our test methods really enabled them to understand what the state of the science really looked like, what the good robotics could do if they had it, so they could ask for it directly and even demand it from the manufacturers. So it sounds like you were able to establish testing methodologies that the industry basically said, fine, we'll adopt these. You didn't have too much pushback from industry, or maybe you did in the beginning? Uh, No, good question. Um, It has been interesting. So this was, you know, I was a design and build robotics engineer at NIST for years before getting into this idea of developing test methods, you know, once removed from the design itself. But our approach was really holistic in that, you know, we were not trying to hurt anybody with these tests. We were just trying to measure, 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 and do so reliably and reproducibly so everyone could measure themselves, actually. 
you know, these test methods are very, very simple to look at. They're very, very easy to build and low cost. And that's kind of the whole idea. And when you put a suite of tests together to try to quantify the entirety of the system, whoever designed that robot might have had abject failure first time in. I mean, we saw a lot of abject failure first time in. But they're all engineers. And they all said, oh, that's what you mean by advanced mobility. Okay, you know, advanced mobility was in the name of their robot, except that robot ended up on its back as soon as it met something akin to a a rubble pile-like terrain, or even less. So they went away with their lessons, maybe with their tail between their legs and their lessons, and they came back stronger, more reliable, and with new thinking on the idea of what does it mean to be really mobile in really unstructured environments. We're speaking with Adam Jakoff. He's a robotics research engineer in the Intelligent Systems Division at NIST, and he's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And describe some of the setups that you had to do to test robots. You mentioned, say, a gravelly hill or rocks in the way. At NIST headquarters, there's lots of open land to just set up test beds. I mean, how did you do this? So everyone's first thought at this game uh, always lands on operational scenarios. So something that is true and real and physical and representative of the mission they have in mind. But we stepped one further back to the notion of real baseline capabilities evaluation. So like literally the abstracted version of whatever operational scenario you have in mind. So let's just take bomb squads, for example, right? Bomb squads are we're early adopters of our tests and use them widely. And, and that's pretty much why all this has happened because worldwide there's a problem and people are in harm's way and they ought not be because the state of the technology is such that they can do what they need to do remotely as long as the robots are holding up their end of that technology uh, burden. So with bomb squads, you might have a package size device and we generated some test methods that are very simple to replicate. So everyone builds it out of wood and PVC pipes and buckets. So if you look at our website, it's at robot test methods, uh, all one word, at NIST.gov, you know, you'll see what looks like, you know, a big box store kind of a purchase list and very simple instructions. But what was inventive about it was the idea that it gets at the nature of the problem, which is if it's mobility, you see terrains made out of lumber put together in such a way or you see directed inspection tasks made out of omnidirectional pipes. And that grew into omnidirectional buckets for aerial systems and drones. And you're going to see very soon, because these things are kind of getting swept across the country and internationally, these are the basic tests to establish your remote pilot proficiency to know that you're safe operating in the national airspace. So the basic tests forces you to do certain moves in sequence, but it really rewards you when you get there because you know you're in the right spot because you're looking at a target in a recessed bucket and you know all you need to know about where you're supposed to be. And then you just need to move on to the next stop and the next stop. And when you add enough of these moves together in any type of robot, ground, aerial, or aquatic, you are starting to measure yourself quantitatively. And that's the whole idea. So they're really abstract tests but they're the basics. They're the calisthenics that you would do before scrimmaging on your sports team. The scrimmage is operational training, but there's something you do as a team before that, which are the perfunctory strengthening muscle memory kind of tests that every athlete knows. 
you must have developed quite a data set that could be reusable for training these types of systems. Yeah, so when we're going through these evaluations, you know, they're very public, so all the manufacturers involved. I founded a robot competition in like 2000, 2001 with a Japanese colleague that is annual every year. All these test methods set up for anyone who wants to try their robots, and it's, it's an international competition. So the data starts flowing from repeated trials. And, you know, now these competitions churn out like 400 trials in three, four days because it's just massively concurrent. So that data ends up informing procurement decisions. Now, sometimes it's an operator proficiency evaluation if you already own your robot. But if it's a brand new robot and no one is good at operating it, we go to the manufacturer themselves to set the bar at the 100th level of proficiency. So that 100th percentile is any operator that makes that robot dance. And then you and I can both get on that same robot in that same test method and measure ourselves against that expert operator or pilot. Sounds like a lot of fun, this work. Yeah, if you stood on the sidelines and looked in, you'd say, uh, that guy is having a good time. It is not easy work. It is long and uh, grueling at times. But ultimately, when you see the payoffs, it has its own uh, inspiring effect. Like the competitions, the test method validation exercises, the interactions with the emergency responders who truly need the help. I mean, these people are utter heroes, and they just need the state of the science working for them to do their jobs a little safer, keep them out of harm's way, uh, while they're trying to work for us, to protect us, to rescue us. Bringing all those groups together around a tangible physical test apparatus and getting to use that test apparatus to sort of guide and focus research is extremely gratifying, and so it has its own benefits every day. Adam Jakoff is robotics engineer in the Intelligent Systems Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. 
and, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most 
impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, 
Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. As a parent, no two days are ever the same. And let's face it, sometimes a little extra help goes a really long way. That's what's so great about Care.com. They make it easier than ever to find local, experienced, and background-checked childcare to help manage your family's ever-changing needs and schedule. From nannies and babysitters to daycare centers and tutors, find help for long- or short-term support. Whether you need an after-school sitter or help with the homework, there's a large selection to choose from. And all caregivers who use Care.com are required to complete a background check before they're able to interact with families on the platform. It's so easy. Just go to Care.com and post a job for caregivers to apply. You can search for qualified candidates, read reviews and ratings, check their availability, and send messages directly. You can even find other kinds of care, including housekeepers, dog walkers, and caregivers for seniors. Find care for all you love. Sign up now and see why over 3 million families use Care.com. Visit Care.com today. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash best music to get Live One Plus now. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever. So you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts.